OTB AM. I was really triggered. We don't want Johnny Sexton having any part of any Netflix curse ahead of the World Cup. OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. Off the ball, daily. Delighted to say that tennis writer with racketmag.com and more. Uh, Caitlin Thompson joins us on the line. Evening, Caitlin. Hi, how's it going? Going good. Thanks, Millie, for jumping on. Um, plenty to get our teeth stuck into here. Um, the commentators, which is the one area I want to go to first before we get into the technicalities of the tennis, but the commentators after the uh, men's final were all saying that they'd never quite seen anything like the Djokovic scenes and celebrating the way that he did, very emotional. He's obviously up with his family and his coaches and he's in the box and he was there for probably an extended period of time. Um, was what, what was all that about? You know, honestly, I've been watching Novak Djokovic for 15 years and I every time I try to have a handle on what he's up to and where the controversy or story or uh, twists and turns of the plot will turn next, I have been made into a monkey's uncle. I could not predict anything except what we've come to expect from him, which is unpredictability off the court, but predictable dominance on the court. I think anybody going into the Australian Open who didn't have Novak Djokovic as the champion uh, was perhaps a little delusional. And I'll include myself in that number because I was really hoping that Sinner or Rune or one of the young guns could kind of take the fight to him. But I have to imagine that tying Novak, uh, sorry, tying Rafael Nadal's record for 22 Grand Slams, which ties him along with Steffi Graf and just one behind Serena Williams as having the most slams was extremely meaningful to him. And I also think, despite the extended jawing at his box, his mom, his wife, his coach, for most of the match, he played about as flawlessly as one could possibly play in winning and having, you know, the scene a year prior where he was banned entry into the court for refusing to be vaccinated was, uh, although it was of his own making, it was still, I guess, an obstacle to overcome. So for me, uh, I have to imagine all of that sort of siege mentality where it's us against the world, it's Serbia, uh, you know, fighting uh, all comers is part of really what makes him great. It's also for a lot of us what makes him tough to root for because it's it, it's so sort of unnecessary. That said, you know what? His tennis did the talking for himself. And I think, you know, obviously a deserved 20-second slam, if not something that we can all sort of celebrate. Did the stuff around his dad feed into the siege mentality, Caitlin? Was that part of it? A hundred percent. I mean, most of this guy on the court commits absolutely no errors, forced or unforced. When it comes to off the court, it seems like a panoply of forced and unforced errors. His father posing with members of the fanship adorned in pro-Russia, pro-Putin, and pro-war t-shirts feels like something you'd kind of just want to maybe steer clear from. Um, You know, it's kind of the same energy that led his family to meet with Nigel Farage, you know, right after Brexit. It's possibly the same sort of energy that called his father uh, into action, uh, wanting to, you know, urge diplomatic international crises last year with the Serbian embassy uh, when Novak Djokovic was ultimately not allowed into the country. So, I mean, obviously it doesn't affect his tennis, but again, it, it, it hardens some of our hearts towards the feel good nature of how excellent his on-court play is uh, while sort of highlighting some of the complexity of who he and his family are as, you know, sort of off-court personalities. 
um, makes it easy for the likes of me and you to be cynical about it, I think. But and I, we'll talk about the tennis in a second. Do we know why the dad wasn't there? Yeah, because he was asked not to be there to feed into the continued uh, sort of uh, attention and controversy. So there is some... By the uh, organisers. Hard to know. I mean, I don't think Novak Djokovic or his brother or his family would necessarily be super forthcoming about that uh, unless it was sort of utilised to motivate him. But yeah, I think somebody asked him not to come. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Novak Djokovic himself. Possibly the organisers. I know that they had been asking fans bearing flags for Russia or pro-war uh, which is kind of, um, you know, synonymous with the Z symbol. I know that that had been banned and asked to be removed at the security checkpoints. I think his father probably had been asked, I guess, by somebody in the camp. Nobody really knows. Um, not surprised he wasn't there. And uh, honestly, in my, you know, 15 or so years of watching him, and I want to distinguish him between other sort of Serbian players, Jelena Jankovic, Anna Ivanovic, uh Alex Krunich. These are fun, exciting, sort of easy to root for uh, players in all cases, women. Novak is sort of a different breed. Part of it is this sort of Serbian nationalism and siege mentality that it brings to it. But also he's also really excellent. I think a lot of his fans feel like he's been given an unfair shake by the press. On the other hand, there's plenty to sort of be dubious about, like I said, with the exception of his tennis. So talk to us about the tennis at the age of 35 and in, in nearly 26, uh, 36 um, in 2023. What, where, what are you noticing about his game now and how it's developed versus, you know, even five, six years ago? Um, I think what he has accomplished in terms of, you know, seamless offense and defense and interchangeable ability to sort of hang in and allow his opponent to kind of go through a spurt of offense while he's sort of playing a little bit more defensively and then wait almost entrapping them in a feeling of confidence. If I were to refer to other matches, like the one he played a couple of years ago at Roland Garros where Steph Titsipas got the first two sets on him. You almost got the sense watching Novak Djokovic that he had Stefanos in that match exactly where he wanted him overconfident about to close. And then he just waited and waged a war of attrition. I think for me, the biggest sort of, issue with the men's field is with the absence of Rafa and with the absence of Carlos Alcaraz, who I think has all of the tools, there really just is an absence of players with belief. You know, we saw Nick Kyrgios make the finals of Wimbledon last year and pretty much seemed to concede the match before he even went out on the court, falling over himself to praise his opponent. I think back to the years of Jimmy Connors or one of these other more pugilistic players being asked about his opponent's game and refusing to even talk about it or give his opponent much of a chance and sort of approach the match as a heavyweight title bout. Whereas Nick Kyrgios seemed to, you know, already want to lay the red carpet to the trophy already out for Novak Djokovic. The same kind of energy pervaded in the Australian Open final uh, when Stefano Tsitsipas sort of seemed to concede the match without even kind of making it an interesting contact test. So absolutely nothing taken away from Novak Djokovic and the fact that he has just found a way between his high percentage tennis and his ability to sort of preternaturally move around the court. It's, it's perfect if it's a little bit cold, but the real issue for me is just none of these other men, at least the ones who showed up down in Australia, seem to have much belief. And that to me is sort of a massive problem. 
I have to imagine that, you know, Carlitos Alcaraz wouldn't have approached that final in the same way. But Stefanos Tsitsipas almost came with an air of defeat before a single ball was struck. And that's, as any coach would tell you, not how you win a tennis match. No, it feels quite pathetic is the only word I can think about if I'm being absolutely honest. Um, it's probably good context though the way you've described it there as to why Goran Ivanisevic and pretty much everybody else who's talking about the fallout of this tournament uh uh, you know, at a minimum, are suggesting there's another three Grand Slams on the table here over the next few years. People are talking about five, six, eight Grand Slams. I mean, partly, you know, his, he's going to be beaten by his own fading age as much as the field. I think part of that is absolutely true. And I think anybody putting money on Novak Djokovic winning a few more slams is uh, uh, an absolutely bankable return. I also think, and this is a quite controversial topic, but you guys don't ask me to come on to be boring, so I'm going to say it. Part of the issue here is best of five set tennis is just super dated. It's super boring. It leads to a lot of injuries, which is why we didn't have Carlos Alcaraz in the tournament, probably also Nikirios. And frankly, it favors a boring, drawn-out, sort of marathon-esque style. You can beat Novak Djokovic in three sets. You can beat Rafael Nadal on clay in a best of three, but you can't beat those guys in five at a grand slam, almost a Herculean effort given the amount of sort of aggressive play maintenance of that sort of red line between, you know, uh, risk and uh, reward is really, really hard to maintain, especially for these younger players who need to do it not once, but over seven matches in a two-week period. So for me, a lot of the blame here, which is why the dominance narrative on the men's side has been allowed to take so much hold, is really best of five is, I think, a dated and kind of, it favors a regression to the mean. A lot of people love the fifth set. A lot of people find drama in it after five hours to see two people with shaky legs try to step up to the line and serve. That favors Novak Djokovic because he loves long uh, sort of fitness tests, but it would be like if every race were a marathon, not a sprint. To me, the fact that you only get one style of winner in that sort of contest is is a little bit to blame here. And again, I'm not going to change the best of three versus best of five argument probably today, but it is to me part of the issue at, at stake here, which is you tend to get uh, less exciting, less unpredictable results when you um, when you ask uh, that h- high of a mountain to be climbed by somebody who's not an existing champion with existing legs. Um, it is slightly off tangent, but it's a very interesting point. It, you could walk that balance of uh, the endurance bit that you talk about and the excitement bit that you talk about if you went with something crazy like four sets. You could possibly end up, of course, with two each and then you end up in uh, an agreed tiebreak. Yeah, I mean, again, I think for me, it's not the length of the matches so much as the quality. You know, everybody remembers a really exciting fifth set, but a lot of times, especially in early rounds or when matches become non-competitive, the third and fourth sets just start to feel a little bit uh, obligatory, right? There's a lot of matches where uh, a, a player will be sort of incentivized to throw that third or fourth set away just so they can try to mount a better comeback in the in the ensuing set. And I think for me, you know, sure, one solution that would be fantastic is best of three in the first week and maybe best of five in the second. And that goes for both genders. For me, best of five is utilized to keep the gap in paying women equally pretty, uh, pretty frequently, which is something I really don't like. And also the other thing I don't like about it is it tends to favor the existing sort of uh, dominant kind of champion types. And I think women's tennis for me right now is in such an incredible place because of the fact that we have this variety and this depth of field and watching 
the comers fail continually to really push these existing champs. Really, I'm talking about Nadal and Clay and and uh, Novak on at the Australian or at Wimbledon. Obviously, he didn't play the U.S. Open last year because of the vaccination requirements, and it's unclear if we'll get to play it this year because right now the U.S. is not allowing um, non-nationals into the country if they haven't been vaccinated, so he cannot play Miami or Indian Wells, which is the next sort of clutch of big tournaments here in the U.S. So I don't know if there's any sort of attempt to kind of address this, but I think the fact that half of the field is injured and not playing in Australia after an 11-month season filled with five-set tournaments makes me hope that at least they'll be open to it. Not for nothing. It's also tough to find five hours to watch a tennis match, you know? As great as that about um, Andy Murray, Tanasi Kokonakis' five-hour match was, that I got off the court at 4 a.m. and nobody watched it locally. You know, the stands were pretty much empty. The ball kids get, you know, have to go home at 4 a.m. and the physios and the trainers and all this stuff. So for me, it's it's really a good opportunity for a lot of reasons to kind of address what it is that we're doing with the game and how we might want it to be a little bit more enticing, especially because of the influx of new fans that are coming into the sport because of a series like Breakpoint on Netflix, which you know, I think a lot of us within the ecosystem hope has a similar impact that uh, Drive to Survive had on the F1. A bunch of new fans who maybe want something new, new commentators, new formats, and some fresh faces. I want all of those things. And so it's time for me to look at the game and say, okay, what are we doing well? And what could we improve? To me, that's one of the things. The uh, Djokovic US point is such an interesting one and it applies for different reasons obviously to Arena Sabalenka in relation to Wimbledon and uh, the ban on players from Russia and, and Belarus. So I think, if I'm right to say she's, there's still an uncertainty around her potential participation there? Completely right. So Wimbledon famously uh, disinvited Russian and Belarusian players from entering the tournament last year and in response the WTA and ATP which are the two governing bodies for men and women tours uh, declined to offer Wimbledon points so players essentially were playing an exhibition I don't think any of them actually thought of it as an exhibition it's the, in a lot of ways the most prestigious and oldest tournament um, in the tennis calendar that said some interesting things happened because of it which is you had a winner in elena rubikina who was a moscovite born and raised parents and family still lives there but five years ago upon not receiving enough support from the russian federation decided to repatriate as a kazakh and so is now playing on the, the kazakhstan flag an interesting outcome when you think about what exactly we're trying to accomplish here by banning certain players and i would ask you know are we going to draw the line with Russian and Belarusians because there's an open conflict? Mm. What about an autocratic state like China? What about Israel? What about many, many problematic geopolitical countries? I love the idea of going after some of the money that's involved in tennis. There's a lot of dark Russian money, both in clubs and in betting. I don't know that players should be forced to pay the price for that. And I think for me, especially after a performance like the one Arena Sabalenka just put on at the Australian Open, really during the entire fortnight, but especially the final. It's a shame to think we won't be able to see her play on grass, someplace that by all accounts should be even more exciting to watch that giant game of hers contend. Because Rubikina, as we should, we you know saw in the final, uh, she can play big babe tennis and, and obviously can succeed on grass, having won it last year. So I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, that country's one is so interesting because uh, I mean I don't know even if either of our countries are going to be allowed to turn up for uh, for for legit reasons also. Um, 
Talk to me about Sabalenka and what your expectation, uh, Caitlin, around around her is. Like, I mean, you know, four hundred. Uh, I saw this stat: four hundred twenty-eight double faults in twenty twenty-two. Uh, re- had to revert at one point to underarm serving. Um, now she moves into her first Grand Slam win. What's how's it, that all happened? It's an amazing story. It's one of my favorite stories in the sport. And for me, I picked her to win the tournament, and I don't often pick correctly. Uh, so I'm really thrilled because I was sort of hoping this was her time. She hasn't lost a match this year, but you're right. Last year, around the same time, she was serving underarm. The fact that she had such terrible yips on her serve, unable to really get it into the court, much less use it as the weapon that it is, was really hard to watch. It was almost unwatchable to watch her play tennis, which is a shame because the way she plays is fearless, it's joyful. And then to see her so racked with fear and anxiety when she stepped up to the line to serve was was really gut-wrenching, especially for anybody who's ever played sports and knows what that feels like uh, in tennis or otherwise. For me, averaging a double-digit double fault rate in matches last year was bananas. And the fact that she still made the top five and qualified for the tour finals speaks to just how amazing her game is, um, even without her biggest weapon. What I loved about what she did this past year was work with, a obviously, a sports psychologist for a time, but also consulted a biomechanics expert to literally break down her service motion, which the service is very complicated. There's a lot of things that have to go right. Your shoulder, your toss, the non-dominant arm, you have to use your legs to go up to it. It's tiring on your back, especially when you serve as big as she does. Um, I've had the yips on my serve. It's a nightmare. It's, It's one of the worst things I've ever gone through. Having a biomechanics expert non-glamorously, and my friend Renee Stubbs, with whom I host a podcast for Racket, noted she would see Arena Sabalenka working with this biomechanics specialist on, you know, sort of far courts at random tournaments here and there, just hours and hours and hours, micro adjustments, really putting in the work and coming back into the space and being able to get past not only to, to win the tournament, to win a slam, but just to make a final. She had been to four Grand Slam semifinals and essentially had epic collapses. In my mind, she should have won the US Open last year. She was leading Iga Sviantek and should have beaten her. She has a better game than Iga's, especially on hard courts. So the fact that she was able, and you might've seen it when she won that semifinal match against Magda de Lynette, not an easy match, somebody who's playing really well, someone who has no pressure, someone against whom you are expected to win and has brought the fight to you, but at the stage in the tournament, a semifinal where you've had so many memorable, notable collapses, to be able to work your way through that, you might have seen after Arena Sabalenka won that match, she pumped her fist, but also the tension in her shoulders immediately dropped because she had gone through this hurdle. So I kind of knew as soon as she got to the final, if she was able to break through that big semifinal block, she hopefully should be able to swing free and play big in the final. And that's exactly what she did. She and, and Elena Robikina had one of the best finals I've ever seen by a large margin. And that's coming off of two extremely hard draws in which they both played well and played extremely high quality opponents even going into it. So I cannot say enough. My lack of enthusiasm for the men's tournament this year, which I'm sure you could hear in my voice, (laughs) is matched in the exact opposite way for how enthusiastic I was about the women's tournament. And that's sort of usual for me because I tend to like the women's game a little bit more, but just the women brought it and it was unrelenting. And like the US Open where the men really outplayed the women and the compelling storylines were all on the men's side, the exact opposite was true here. The Australian Open women's tournament for singles was just filled with drama and it could not have been more exciting in that incredible final that we got between two really, really great competitors at the top of their game. Uh, Ribikina's CV is so weird. Like she obviously uh, 23 year old Wimbledon champion best results 
by an absolute distance have been Melbourne and Wimbledon uh, last year, but they're total outliers to the rest of her CV. Completely right. I think part of that is she's a big hitter who likes big courts. One thing that she doesn't do as well as Arena Sabalenka, and she's younger, so she's really got time, I think, to work on this. She does not close at the net as well as Arena Sabalenka does. Sabalenka has a grand slam in doubles with Elise Mertens and has a, made a ton of finals, won a ton of titles because she can volley and close really well. That's something I'd love to see Elena Rubikina do. But it really makes sense that the two fastest courts, grass at Wimbledon and hard court under that hot Melbourne sun at the Australian, really favor big hitting. And that's why she's had so much success there. I think for me... Clay is very unlikely to ever be her bailiwick, so don't look for her to do super well, usually like at the end of spring, early summer, during that very massive clay swing. And the U.S. Open, I think she just kind of had a bad draw this year. She played Clara Burrell, who sort of played out of her mind. Sometimes you win, you know, it's a streaking opponent. One of those uh, nearly took out uh, Maria Sakkari in the first round in, a, in the form of a Maria Schneider Second round, one did take her out in the form of maybe a third round in Julin, who almost took the story Azarenka out. You know, sometimes people just have a, a bit of a role and it's it's really hard to, to weather the storm. But I think in the case of Rubikina, she should be in the top 10 and had a Wimbledon um, given points for her victory, she would have been in the top 10 already. She'll be there now after this finalist appearance at, at the Australian. But I think it really does go to speak about why all of this sort of geopolitical stuff is really important because with points from Wimbledon, uh, Elena Rybakina gets a totally different draw at the U.S. Open, and maybe she doesn't play a streaking opponent because she's a little bit more protected in what what portion of the draw she's in. So a lot of the stuff seems like it might not matter that much, but I do think Elena Rybakina is very real, and I loved seeing her back up a Wimbledon victory. Now, granted, I think Ons Jabir should have run away with that and basically gave the match away. Rubikina <laughs> took it and played great tennis and then backed it up with a trip to the finals here. So I'm not going to be surprised if we keep seeing her, especially on those faster courts where she really, really, really wants to basically just pulverize the ball into submission because her and Arena Sabalenka were doing just that uh, a couple of days ago down at Melbourne. All right, well, look at it. It's uh, just the start of the year, so uh, plenty more to chat about as, as it progresses. Uh, more of your stuff on racketmag.com. Check out Racket Magazine. Caitlin Thompson, thanks a million. Thanks for having me. Cheers.